Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. When I think of full-time guides who are doing it right, I think of Jeff Forsey. Jeff epitomizes a good guide, professional, likable, clever, and fishy, But what's really interesting about Jeff is that he's living what many people would call the dream. An Ohio boy who worked hard to climb the ranks, he now splits his year guiding between Mongolia and New Zealand. In this episode of Anchored, I sit down with Jeff at his home in Wanaka for some casual late night conversation about how he pulled it all together, what he would do differently, and fishing etiquette everyone should know. Cincinnati, Ohio. I kind of grew up in the, in the suburbs of Cincinnati. With regular parents, what was life like growing up? My life was good growing up. Yeah, regular parents, mom and dad, they're still together and yeah, they're great. It was kind of like the first suburb out of the city, so to get to kind of, you know, downtown Cincy is probably like maybe 20 or 30 minute drive for us, 30 minutes max, I'd say. But not too long to kind of get out to what we call the country either, you know, kind of like 40 minutes and you're, you're kind of in rural Ohio out there. Did you have a typical kind of boy upbringing? Did you guys yeah. spend a lot time outside totally like you know hell on wheels you know like my poor mother um (laughs) yeah especially because brian and i bobby um is a little bit older than us um but brian and i like i said we're 17 months apart we had a lot of the same friends like and i mean like three boys you know growing up in ohio like um we just got into pretty much as much trouble as we could and like you know like fishing and just hanging out in the dirt and whatever you know um but it's what i think of as like what everybody should think of when they think of a little boy's upbringing. <laughs> yeah, it did was you, good. Did you fish through school? Yeah, so, and, and, and that's it. I guess that's my point. That's um, that's what we did as a family. You know, we go camping and fishing. And, yeah, so I've, I've fished my entire life. You know, like, I, I would have caught my first fish, you know, when I was too young to remember. I don't remember my first fish, but I've seen photos and I was just a little guy. Um, I wasn't a fly fisherman, you know, from way back. Um, did catch my first fish on the fly when I was pretty young, but there was some time later where I got serious into, into fly fishing. What did you want to do for a living? I, oh, God, I had no idea, April. So the, the priority number one, like for me, I think I was always infected with like a bit of wanderlust. And priority number one for me was just to get the hell out of Ohio, to be honest. I love that I'm from Ohio and, you know, um, I have a big part of my life there. But, yeah, I wanted to get out and see the world. So that was, yeah, that was that was the, the number one priority. And that's what I did, like... 
So I finished high school and then I, I, I went out west. I moved to Colorado. Um, I think I like wow. spent that first summer, winter in southern Ohio, just kind of hanging out, like trying to figure out what the hell I was doing. I had a buddy that went to school, college out there in Durango down the southwest of the state. And I love Durango. It's such a good town. Yeah. It's, I haven't been there in a long time. Uh, I hope it hasn't changed too much, but yeah, it's a, it's a sweet, sweet place. I'm surprised you didn't settle there. Why didn't you stay there? Uh, itchy feet, probably. I don't know, you know, like it's, I mean, I still have, <laughs> I live in paradise and like, I'm always thinking, you know, well, where, where else can I live? Where else can I go? You know, what can I do? And still like that wanderlust, I guess, never settled down, you know, it never left me. So I, I wanted to kind of get out and see the world still. What were you yeah. doing to make money? Cause you're not a trust fund baby. No, I'm not a trust fund baby. <laughs> I, I've done everything to make money. So in, in Colorado, that was... Man, moving to Colorado was like such an eye-opener for me. That was a really cool thing to do at that age. I worked as a whitewater raft guide there for the two summers that I lived there. And that was awesome, man, because like for a kid from Southern Ohio, I didn't really know that even that was even a thing, you know what I mean? That you could like really do that, you know? Like, of course, I'd, I've known about whitewater rafting and stuff. And like maybe like my later years in high school and stuff, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah that would be kind of something fun to do. But it was not, you know, we don't have whitewater rivers right around us, you know? So How'd you get experience? Um, through guide training, man. So I moved out to... Colorado and like everything was new everything was exciting I didn't know yeah what I was gonna do I didn't have a dime to my name more or less I was living in a trailer like with some buddies outside of Durango you know like 30 minutes outside of town and they just finished up their schooling for the summer and you know we were all kind of in the same boat looking for summer jobs mm -hmm. and one of the dudes that I was living with Matt he him and I I don't know how we came across it but there was we saw like an advertisement for guide training or something you know oh. it was like four or five hundred bucks mm -hmm. um, so it's pretty expensive especially you know given my circumstances but I just like there's no way I can miss out on this like I have to be a whitewater guide you know so yeah we forked over the cash did the training and started working that summer and yeah I was guiding in the summer and then I was working in a gear shop in the um over the winter so what do you mean by gear uh, shop? like an outdoor gear shop not hunting and fishing but climbing and backpacking and stuff like that really cool little shop like right on main street downtown Durango which is cool because that gave me exposure to a lot of really cool people that were doing a lot of really cool stuff that I just didn't get back home in Ohio and I got a lot of inspiration from from that so and same with guiding there, you know? So then where does the fishing guiding come in? Not until later. That was... Fishing guiding came in after I moved to New Zealand. I didn't start guiding until I moved here. So that was like probably six years ago. And that was going back to Alaska. So there's a whole ton of stuff in the middle too. I, I, yeah, I was a bit of, I don't know. I got around a lot. Like I moved around. So after Colorado, I went back to Ohio. I kind of, I guess I was getting itchy feet. I was communicating with a buddy of mine from high school. He was finishing college, like looking for adventure. I was looking for adventure. So we kind of met up in Ohio, worked for a couple months. I was working in this like factory making cultured marble countertops for like my dad's buddy was he not pushing you to go to college because you said your dad's a plumber yeah so he's a tradesman yeah and he would have had to have education yeah was he not pushing you you know go to school get a get some sort of skill underneath you um uh not not really my parents were kind of <laughs> pretty supportive and you know, with my my kind of motions, I guess. I don't know. I guess he, he probably encouraged me at a at a younger age to kind of do those kind of things. Like my older brother is a, he's a tradesman. You know, he's a plumber. Like and like my father would have been more or less kind of like self taught and stuff. You know, and I, and I and my brother would have trained kind of more or less again under him. You know, and like I had plenty of time. You know, with those guys on job sites, and I've, I've worked on pretty plenty of job sites when I was in high school, and and you know probably that year after high school before going to Colorado, um, whatever that time frame was and I mean I don't know he probably knew then that it just it wasn't for me as much as I knew that it wasn't for me you know I, I, I didn't want to be a plumber I didn't want to be a builder you know I didn't know what I wanted so I don't know if he thought I was a lost cause or yeah. <laughs> what but <laughs> <laughs> so then where did you go from there so you work these random jobs you're making countertops <laughs> yeah. yeah making countertops and then so the adventure right that's what we were going for um, we came to New Zealand uh, in 2006 so I was like 
like 21 or something then 22 i guess and yeah we came to new zealand and spent we spent a year abroad uh, we spent the better part of a year here my buddy went over to oz for a little bit and i hung out here i didn't really fish that much when i was here we were just kind of cruising around and you know seeing what the world had to offer you know and then we carried on through like southeast asia and a couple other places and went back home and then alaska came into my life <laughs> ah, so the wild big vast landscape is that what you were looking for yeah it was the 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 lure of you know the last frontier or whatever i mean you grew up in north america we've heard about alaska since we were kids also no so what actually as much as the place itself took me to alaska was work okay so when i was working in that gear shop back in durango i was working with a dude i don't remember his last name uh his name's chris and he worked on commercial fishing boats up there uh-huh. and again you know as a southern ohio kid like i didn't even know that was a thing like you know seafood is like my mom was just here and they just ate like scallops for the first time ever the other day you know <laughs> so like we just didn't eat a lot of seafood let alone base our lives around as commercial fishermen um so anyway i got real excited when chris kind of told me about that and like it was good money you know so i could go up there and work seasonally in and tear off and see the world and that's what i did i did that for like you know a few years uh probably four years i think i did four seasons working in bristol bay on commercial fishing boats skill netting and then down in prince william sound for long line for halibut and oh, cod wow. and, yeah so many people who i've had on the show started by fishing on commercial net uh, is that right yeah yeah, yeah. It's really interesting to me it is interesting so what's funny fish have always been kind of a theme in my life you know like I, I, like I said, I grew up fishing, and I, I, I learned fly fishing, you know, rudimentary fly fishing anyway at a really young age. But, like, fish, like, I mean, I remember being a kid, and, like, I wanted to be a marine biologist, you know? When through through high school, I worked as well, and I worked in a pet shop. And part of the pet shop, it was, like, this really cool pet shop. It's called Your Pet Shop and Water Gardens. It's in Hyde Park in Cincinnati, and it's run by this, like, old lady named Karen. And she had, it was, like, these two old houses. They had, like, a big, like, wooden fence perimeter, you know, both the yards were contained and they had like all these water gardens with like you know lilies and lotus and kois and goldfish and stuff like that and I, I like ran like the whole fish side of things you know so like I was in charge of like you know like ordering like fish and like I thought that was like the coolest shop in the world at the time because it was you know like I was gonna pay decent money and like I just like put like fish aquariums together and so yeah and then like later in life you know commercial fishing and then fishing guiding it's just like been this total theme at what point did you start looking at the commercial I mean did you ever look at the guides in Alaska and think yeah that that's something that interests me as well yeah totally so that's okay so that point in my life that was where I got a lot more exposure to fly fishing and that's where I started getting into fly fishing and getting serious about fly fishing I was in Alaska and even working as a commercial fisherman so my first job that I maintained throughout the whole time there was on a gillnetter uh, out of Bristol Bay and it was our dry dock was in King Salmon which King Salmon is like the hub of Bristol Bay right like you're flying in and out of King Salmon and I'd you know, kind of been around a little bit, so inefficient guiding was a thing. I just didn't know like the scale of it and the capacity of it. I know I was in like this mecca for fishing, obviously, but then I went out there and you'd go up to the bar, you know, and like there's a commercial fisherman and the and then there's the guides too, and you're like, wow, what are these dudes doing? You know, and it was all pretty. That was pretty eye opening. You know, it was pretty exciting. And then, like at the same time, I was I was fishing a lot, like because our boat was like it was dry docked, okay, so it was out of the water. But it, and this is like this is like twenty miles up the Naknek River from Bristol Bay itself, and but it's right on the Naknek River. So I'd like I we a couple weeks before we'd go out and fish, and then you know a week or so, a couple weeks after we'd go out and fish, uh, we'd be in King Salmon working on the boat, you know, mending nets, you know, doing any repairs, packing up, dewinterizing, winterizing, whatever. But you know, after I did my work for the day, I go down and fish the knack I just wandered down and that summer I bought my first like nice fly rod you know like up until that time I'd always used whatever was available you know like I think you know when we were kids like my dad would have bought us some like best pro shop special you know what I mean and that's where we kind of got our start but I was like I don't know, I must have been looking for something to, you know, put energy to, and I decided I was fly fishing, so I, you know, I invested a little bit of money into a, a pretty nice rod and reel. Yeah, and I go out on the knack and I was like, I didn't know what I was doing, and I, I remember, like, breaking off all these flies, because I was, like, smacking shit behind me on my back gas, but I was still, like, catching some pretty nice fish, you know? Like, yeah. so there was huge rainbows, and, like, for the first time in my life, I was, like, giddy, you know, I was super happy about it, but I probably didn't really know 
how awesome it was, I think, you know? <laughs> Looking back now. Yeah. So how long were you in New Zealand before you went to Alaska? The whole trip, we were gone, I think, for 12 months. So I must have been in New Zealand for like nine or 10 months. Okay, so you traveled for a year and then you went back to the gear shop and then you went to Alaska? <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's crazy. Um, no, I went back to Ohio after that. Okay. And then Alaska. But a big... Uh, perhaps the most important event that happened in New Zealand is I met Hillary, who's my girlfriend. You guys have been together for 10 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a, a decade. It's a long time. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of, it seems uh, silly to call her my girlfriend. So yeah, she came up to Alaska and then like went back home. And then I think it basically came to a point where it was like time to shit or get off the pot, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and then I moved to New Zealand. <laughs> what were you Just planning like, on doing for work here? At this point, were you thinking I'm going to be a fishing guide? Uh, no, no, not... I, th- I yeah okay so I guess I at that point in my life yeah fishing guiding was on the radar it's something that I wanted to do I probably didn't have the skills to do it then but I knew I was like passionate enough about fly fishing and angling and I knew the the possibilities of guiding or you know at least some of them and uh, it was definitely on the radar but I still had some some learning to do I think so I moved down here and I worked as a commercial fisherman um, in New Zealand <laughs> yeah oh, for wow. a short amount of time but yeah that was the first thing I did what for what kind of fishery cod blue cod okay yeah, so uh, we live in Invercargill, which is at the bottom, the very bottom of the South Island. Next stop's like Stewart Island, well, Bluff, which is where I fished out of, uh, which is a very small fishing village at the very bottom of the South Island. We would pot fish for cod around the uh, around kind of Stewart Island and the Southern Seas down there. And I did that for, um, I don't know, maybe six months or something when I first moved here because, uh, you know, I basically just come out of that in Alaska. So I did that, and, I mean, that was like commercial fishing. Like, I, w- I wouldn't trade it for the world, you know? Like, I got a lot out of that, and... And, you know, of course, it's like good character building work. And but I wouldn't go back to it unless I unless I had to, you know. And I think I had that realization at that point, especially that fishery down there. Like it was, you know, the, the southern seas are brutally rough, you know. And it was it was a grind. And again, like I loved it, but um, I was probably like, oh, it's time to do something else. And and also, you know, fly fishing was like paramount in my life too. So I wanted to kind of move towards that. So I ended up getting a job in a hunting and fishing store in Invercargill, and that was my introduction to to New Zealand fly fishing kind of commercial side of things. The industry? The industry, yeah. yeah. That's the word. So, I was trying to avoid using. <laughs> but it is though, right? It is, yeah. Now, it's really interesting here. I'm, I've been excited to talk to you about the fly fishing industry uh-huh. in New Zealand as a non as a non-citizen. Yeah. Because you are a resident now. Yeah, I'm a permanent resident. I have been for a while, but uh, yeah, not a, not a citizen. But it is a really interesting discussion. It actually gets to be quite heated when you start talking about the guide world because there's a lot of politics in the guide world here. Yeah. Did did you just say to the guys at the shop, I'd like to guide for you guys? No, because it doesn't work like that here. Um, okay. <laughs> this is such a long story. I'm sorry. Uh, because I don't think you realize, let me just kind of open with your story is so inspiring <laughs> because people by now will have heard the opening intro to the podcast. So they know that you guide in Mongolia and in New Zealand. Okay. Yeah. But your story is really interesting in that you left the Midwest to really just take a gamble. And now you're one of the most... I don't know if you know this, but you are one of the most established guides in the region. People know your name. Whenever I say I'm coming to New Zealand, they're like, oh, are you fishing with Forsy? Yeah, right. And in Mongolia, you're like the guy. I mean, it's weird because I know you're American, but it it really is an an inspiration that you you up and left and that you're doing it. Like, you're living the dream. Totally. Quote, unquote, dream. Mm. And I want to talk about the realities of that. (laughs) I want to talk about uh, the struggles and the liberties and and how you did it. Okay. And that's why. I'm here. Cool. Even though I, yeah. I love spending Thanks. time with you, I really yeah. want to hear how you, what your story is. Yeah. Okay. So it's not how it happens in the shops. So how does it work? Um, yeah, it's not how it happens in the shops. So just to quickly answer, like I started guiding in Alaska before I started guiding here. Oh no way! <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you finished commercial guiding. <laughs> yeah. And I started working in the shop, and I, like I said, like even even when I finished commercial fishing, uh, and at that point, like guiding was on the radar. That was the next step. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a fishing guide, and I knew Alaska, and Alaska is a great place for somebody to go to cut their teeth as a fishing guide. I was like I said, I was familiar with the fishery. Uh, I was familiar with the place. I was I was comfortable and relatively confident confident there. And I have the ability because I'm an American citizen, you know, to go back there and work. So I pursued a job there and I started guiding.
riding at Alaska West during our winters. Oh, you ride Alaska West? Yeah, which is funny because I was just listening to your podcast with Whitney Gould the other day. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I did two seasons at Alaska West, and that was my introduction to the guiding world, to fly fishing guiding. Okay, yeah. so it didn't scare you away? No, God, no. Yeah. You loved it? Loved it, yeah. Yeah, it was great. Like, it was massively intimidating from the get go. Um, Wasn't it a major pay cut from commercial fishing? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, no, I mean, yeah, but commercial fishing was like, so, uh, like just hit or miss, you know what I mean? Like you don't catch fish, you don't get paid. And Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, for sure. And it was, yeah, it was just so random. At least my setup was with it anyway, you know, and it's like any seasonal work too, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of happening or it's not, I guess. But yeah, that was like the best introduction to guiding I could have asked for because like the the group of guides there are just the world class man they're legends and they were like so good but like I said it was massively intimidating because you like you know you're flying into this like middle of nowhere river you've never been like tent camp like veteran guides and you got hired as a guide like for the for the guy listening right now who is thinking about trying to do what you've done did did you approach Lodge and say look I will be like a decky or I will be like a cabin boy no I didn't because I I to be honest, like, I mean, that is a great way to do it, I think, but I didn't want to do that. I really wanted to be a guide, and I felt like I would do a good job of being a guide, so I really pushed the guide thing. I didn't want to go up there and work as a, a campaign. I wanted to be a fishing guide. Did they try to get you to do something else? No, they didn't. They were really good. <laughs> it's pretty fun. Like, uh, so I think I just, like, I decided Alaska West because they have a great reputation, you know, whatever their history, all that. And I think I just, like, pulled up their, like, info at com email and, like, wrote them, like, a cold email. <laughs> <laughs> it was like it was probably like way longer than it ever should have been, but obviously the you know the head guy Jeb Hall at the time could like you know he he, he saw something in there and like called me back you know we had like the Skype interview and uh, I guess they decided to kind of go out on a limb and hire me which was really cool mm-hmm. so yeah that was huge so it's like some of the most. I don't know. In those couple of years of guiding in Alaska, I, I just like advanced so much as an angler. You know, just being around those dudes. And 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 in the years kind of in New Zealand leading up to that, I was fishing with like some guys that were pretty good anglers and stuff. And that was just like, I mean, I'm like total monkey see monkey do guy. So like just being around those people and like just trying to take it all in was um, was a big advancement for me. So yeah, I was guiding in Alaska, and then yeah, at that point because I knew I, I, I couldn't I couldn't guide here, but I wanted to guide in New Zealand. Um, I couldn't guide here for. I guess you could call them like policy reasons and because I guess I I probably wasn't ready to guide here either. I was still learning the fishery and New Zealand is just uh, it's a whole new kettle of fish. You just have to know so much water and it's a super demanding fishery. It's like, I mean, in my opinion, it's one of the best trout fisheries on the planet, but it's hard, you know? Uh, Mm -hmm. And I I don't think I realized how much you actually have to know until I actually did end up starting guiding here, you know? So you're working at the shop. Yeah. You want to be a guide. Yeah. What's your first step? Just con- reaching out to other guides, which I think is the, the, the logical step because, yeah, those guys know, right? So, but they are citizens, mm-hmm. and are they working for lodges or are they independent? Uh, largely independent. Yeah, I never reached out to. Oh, I might have reached out to the odd lodge here and there, but lodges aren't really a big thing in New Zealand. No, they're not. And I find yeah. that even the guides who do work for lodges, I mean, they're contracting out through the lodge, yeah. right? And they yeah. still have their own Mostly, business. I think. Yeah, I don't know the ins and outs of every lodge. Some of them might have a base guide staff and stuff, but... I haven't met one yet, but I, maybe they okay. are, but I, yeah. I haven't met yeah, one. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, you would know as well as I would, so... So um, what did people think when you started reaching out to them? Because yeah, now you're like, potential competition? Yeah, potential competition. And I, I, it's, it's real funny, man because like I mean the Kiwis have been like so good to me since I've lived here you know like they're they're a really kind of welcoming bunch good people but you know like people are protective of their fisheries like anywhere in the world you know and New Zealand has this kind of real kind of transient population with tourism and everything and and obviously with fishing too a lot of people migrate down here to fish you know so I think I wasn't, I wasn't even on the radar of a lot of these dudes, you know, and I think a lot of times, and I've experienced it since I've established myself as a guide here, you know, they, they just kind of like wrote me off at first, you know, like I'd be like, hey, I want to be a guide, and they're like, whatever, dude, you know, they're just like, you're just another guy that's like here and like has been fishing here for a couple of years and is going to leave, no big deal. No. So you had to get your residency before you were Yeah, permanent resident, yeah, I had to be a permanent resident before I joined the New Zealand Professional Fishing Guides Association, uh, that was one of their requirements, and I think now it's, you have to be a 
permanent resident for like two years or something before you can join up. Yeah, they're cracking down, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, big time. And I don't know if I had anything to do with that, but <laughs> I don't think so. You may have just put it in because yeah, I read yeah. some of the correspondence recently yeah. or some of the discussion on, you know, just Facebook posts. Right. The guides are rightfully yeah. defensive about all these people who want to come in and yeah. they're saying the country is being loved to death. Yeah, which it is. You know, it is. And you see it with tourism and, and, and everything. And, 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 and that's a big thing that we need to kind of combat here. And I think probably a lot of parts of the world is, I mean, you know, that kind of stuff where like money is exchanged overseas and, you know, you come over here and use a New Zealand resource and, and go back home and, you know, and then we're kind of, you know, I don't want to say left to clean up the mess, but, you know, we're, we are the ones that are kind of dealing with it at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So I understand now, especially, you know, in hindsight, why there was a lot of reservation um, when I was reaching out to people initially to be a guide here. Because it sounds really enticing. Uh, when I go to book a, a guide for a day, it's like, I think their rate is like 700 New Zealand a day or something. Yeah, 800 and- or more. Yeah, yeah and, and they work their own schedule. They're usually booked out. Mm-hmm. Their their job looks amazing. I sure. mean, like I really enjoyed steelhead guiding, but I would love to stand next to someone and be like, okay, do you see that 12-pound brown? <laughs> Don't <laughs> yeah. fuck this up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. It just seems really appealing. But I know that there's got to be, it's got to be hard. I, I just, I don't want everybody listening to this thinking that they can just move to New Zealand and make it happen. So No, you can't. Like, I'm super lucky, to be totally honest. Like, yeah. and it's my circumstances, man. And it always has been that way. I've just, like, been in the right place at the right time, I think. You know, and, like, you know, being in a relationship with a Kiwi, like, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Hillary. You know, like, I, as, as much as I might want to say I'm here for the fishing, it's not. I'm here for my girlfriend, you know. And then, and so I made my life here. So that's, that's kind of how I got here. The, you can't just come over and start guiding in New Zealand, you know, it's just not No, I'd say you are very much an exception. Yeah. But let's talk about the obstacles. Hmm. Because I think New Zealand's really interesting. A lot of people don't realize how it works. They've never been here. I'll just paint a bit of a picture. Yeah. On these rivers, there are a lot of access points. Yeah. Which obviously creates potential for there to be busy waterways. But there Mm -hmm. are so many waterways Mm -hmm. that uh, it does help to displace some of the traffic. Yeah. But even, like, I, we have a sign that goes on our truck that says we started here. That's right. And we're working our way up. Can we just kind of walk the listener through this so they know? Yes. I'd be, like, happy to because it's so important to, like, preserve the New Zealand experience to adhere to our etiquette. And etiquette is everything down here. And it's actually, like, it's spelled out in the book, you know, when you buy your license. So if you don't remember, you can check it out there. And there's plenty of information on the Internet, too. But, yeah, etiquette's a big deal. And it's it's the nature of the fishery, you know. Like, New Zealand, this is a generalization, of course, but overall all like low density fisheries you know not a lot of fish around uh super clear waters brown trout super spooky fish right mm-hmm. so uh, you don't want to be fishing behind somebody in short and you need room you need a lot of room and we're working upstream we're working upstream yeah yeah generally um working upstream and so that's the deal okay you're right so we have all these fish and game access points or other spots you know bridge where you can access the river obviously there's two ways to go um you can go upstream or downstream but yeah when you pull up if you're you know if you're kind of abiding by the etiquette You'll have a sign or just write a little note, put it in the dash of your car saying, I've gone upstream, I left at, you know, 9 o'clock a.m. and I'm fishing all day. And basically that lets other people know where you are because, you know, if I pull up to that same access point, you know, an hour after you and I actually wanted to go downstream, it's a real gamble for me to be like, oh, it's this dude upstream or is he downstream? Most of the time they go upstream, but you never know, you know, and then that can ruin your day. And obviously you don't want to run down on somebody either and, yes, you know, start sure. fishing like you know, a mile or a few kilometers above them. And yeah. then they, you know, all of a sudden you've jumped them, which is a major no, no. And you're probably going to hear about it. Well, <laughs> swinging flies now. You don't know if people have gone up or down. Mm. So is that a, like a guide rule? Does do all guides leave a note on their dash? Yeah, I think, I think I'd say most of the guides and most of the Kiwi anglers period are, are pretty good about it. You, you know, see a lot of rental cars and they don't have that, that kind of um, information on their dash or anything. But yeah, mo- mo- most, most Kiwi anglers down here anyway are, are, are pretty good about it. What are some other areas of ethics people should know about? Yeah, so also, too, like, I mean, you know, maybe somebody didn't write a note on their car, so you don't know where they are. Like, you, you got to give people space, you know, um, at least a few kilometers, I would say. And, you know, it, it really helps. And, like, I don't expect everybody to know, like, every fishery and, you know, if you need. And, like, there's some rivers that I fish, and I'm like, well, I'll cover, like, 10 kilometers of river in a day, you know, just because there's not a lot of fish and there's not a lot of opportunities and you have to walk, you know. So I guess you don't really expect everybody to know that, but, um, yeah, you just want to give people space. 
spread out, you know, don't just drive up a kilometer and jump in front of them. Because uh, it ruins everyone's day. You know, it's going to ruin your day, too. And, and, you know, I was one of those people who would not have left a note because I just didn't know better. Yeah, and that's right. And I get that. A lot of people come here and they don't because it is pretty unique to New Zealand. But the information is there and things like this are good, you know, to kind of get it out there. The yeah. What about helicopter fishing? That's a big thing here. And I know that I, the first time I ever went helicopter fishing here, I went to take a photo of it. And Charles was like, what? No, don't do that. Don't do that. People will give you shit about it. And I was like, well, I don't understand. Yeah. Uh, what, are, what, are, what is the hostility around helicopter fishing? I think the hostility is... Um, <laughs> Because, like, I mean, you know, shit can happen in a helicopter. It, you know, if you... If helicopters jumping in front of dudes who have put in the hard yards basically to get there, you know, because that's the deal, right? Like, and I have you know, been one of those people for sure. who hiked in and a helicopter's hovering and it's like, no, no. We just spent hours walking in here and that shit is hard to walk through. Is there anything worse? Like, there's not. No. You know, and and, and, I, and I'm the same way. I do a lot of backcountry fishing in New Zealand, you know, and I've like, I put the big backpack on and I hike for days and I get in there and... The last thing you want is a helicopter jumping in front of you. But that's a big thing in this country, right? It is a big thing, yeah. And 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 again, like it, it also comes with like kind of knowing the lay of the land too, because there's definitely systems that get heli fished a lot more than other systems. There's systems that you're not allowed to helicopter fish. Oh, really? Yeah. So getting down to that and figuring that out is a big thing. And responsible etiquette on behalf of the guides and the people in the helicopters as well, you know. And that that that's that's a responsibility of, as I said, like the guides, the fishermen, and I think the helicopter companies. And whether everybody abides by that, probably not. And that's why you hear so much you know trash talk i guess about helicopters but you know like I, I i fly in helicopters sometimes you know i don't do it a lot it's more kind of to be honest from my perspective for the experience of being in a helicopter and stuff than it is to just go like whale on dumb fish because it just doesn't happen because it's new zealand yeah. um but you know like when i'm flying in like uh, like I, I get nervous about it man because i don't want to ruin anybody's day because i've been there you know what i mean but I'm, I'm i'm doing my best like i'm, I'm looking you know down in the valley i've heard crazy stories of like you know backcountry anglers like hearing a helicopter and then hiding like that's a super I, I don't know why like I, I'm not sure what the logic is there if you hear a helicopter make yourself visible because I want to know that you're there man and like if it's possible like I'll come down and land and have a yarn to you and see you know am I you know, what, are, what are your plans because we're all here you know we want to fish and like you know definitely kind of give way to those dudes you know they have right away they're here and they you know they walked here you know we flew yeah. in a helicopter and I spell that out to my clients as well and the helicopter um, pilots are great too with communicating they'll be like oh we dropped a guy here yesterday totally. or we drove over there earlier this morning and we saw some guys there but so yeah, yeah. hiding from a helicopter is a bad it's idea. a bad idea and like i carry a high-vis vest around with me and like i'm like if i hear a helicopter coming in i'm like waving my vest around. i am here and and also too you know like on some rivers like you know like okay well i'll just go you know five kilometers or whatever and and we can fish up from there i'll go down below them three kilometers or something and fish up you know what i mean mm -hmm. and then everybody's happy you know uh but yeah i mean like i said sometimes i'll land and talk and you can tell me like i don't know maybe you're on your way out, you know, or maybe you're only going to fish up for, you know, another hour or something and turn around and get out of there. But, you know, communication is key. And that's like the, that's the premise across New Zealand etiquette. Like, and that's why those little notes on your car are so important. And that's like, Fish and Game has done an amazing job, I think, you know, and, I, and uh, there's there's room to, for improvement, definitely, but with all of their access points, and there's some rivers, high-pressure fisheries, that have, like, beat systems on them, which is, like, the I think the coolest system that I've ever been a part of, you know? like How do they work? So the beat systems are real cool. Um, there's a particular river down south that has this beat system on it, and basically the, the whole river is divided up into, like, I don't know, say they're four-kilometer, five-kilometer sections. How many kilometers in a day would you fish a client? Mm. A client probably like maybe three or something on average, I would say. And myself, I probably cover a bit more water, you know. Obviously, every day is different, you know. It depends on, you know, if people can walk and, and what the fishing is like. Some days you need more water, you know, if the visibility is bad for sighting or whatever um, than you would other days. But, yeah, so this beat system is, is super cool. They've broken up the river into these, you know, say five-kilometer long beats. And there's a sign, like, very clear instructions. If you want to fish this beat, park here, and it's first come, first serve, okay? So if you get up and you arrive there at 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the morning, you know, it's yours for the day. You don't have to worry about anybody jumping in front of you. You know, like, there's a little, like, Google Earth image on it, and it shows you, uh, like, this is your beat, and there's, like, markers on the river, and you're, like, fish from here to here. And so there's no 
excuses, you know what I mean? And especially in a, like a, a highly kind of coveted fishery, no one's going to jump in front of you. And that's, that's awesome, man, because I don't know how long it'll last. I hope it lasts forever, but it really preserves that experience that's required to have what we have now. Can you kill fish in those systems? Uh, yeah. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Uh, and all of them are different, but yeah, it'll be like a bag limit of one trout. Yeah, every river's different. What's your personal take on killing fish, big fish out of... Never. Rivers? Like, bigger fish, big fish, smaller rivers, like I wouldn't do it in a million years, you know, it just devastate me to see it happen. Um, I, I eat fish, but I just do it from the, the, the right place, you know. I live on a big lake, you know, that's a great place to go harvest a fish. Um, there's some, there's plenty of rivers that have a lot of fish in them and it's not going to hurt, you know. I wish some of those rivers were no kill. I really wish they were. Um, but there is a lot of kill that happens here, right? Um, a lot of non-residents. Yeah, yes and no. You know, you hear, you, you do hear a bit about it, definitely. And, I, and I've encountered it. You know, I've been in the bush and, like, ran into other anglers and they're, like, you know, in this backcountry stream and, yeah, they're, they're cooking a trout, you know, and it's like, oh, don't really want to see that. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know, April. I don't know how much of an issue it is, to be totally honest. You know, I don't... Um, Are they stocked, these fish? No, no. There's not really much stocking that goes on here at all. So yeah. they were stocked in the 1800s. Yeah, exactly. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Myro. Myro makes natural deodorant that uses barley powder to keep you dry and a custom blend of essential oils that release scent over time rather than all at once. I was excited to give Myro a try for a number of reasons. For starters, it comes in a refillable case, helping to reduce plastic waste, but it also smells beautiful and, as strange as it sounds, is aesthetically pleasing. Before sharing this with you guys, I wanted to put it to the test, so I have worn mine every day for the last two weeks and am stoked to say that it works a treat. Their formula is hardworking and long-lasting, but what really sold me on it is its ingredients. With 0% aluminum or parabens, I feel good about wearing it every day and feel even better about promoting it here on the show. Myro is offering 50% off your first order if you get started today for just $5. Visit mymyro.com forward slash anchored and use the promo code anchored. Simply choose your preferred scent and color of the case, then get a refresh sent to your door every three months. Again, just head to mymyro.com forward slash anchored and enter promo code anchored. Enjoy. that you guide is Mongolia. Yeah, Mongolia. I've been guiding up there for four, you know, this will be my fifth season we're coming into now, so. So same thing, you just emailed them and said, hey, <laughs> Yeah, hi. totally. Who yeah, literally. Like yeah. Have you been denied yet? Have you guided somewhere <laughs> and been denied? Um, I, I don't know. I think I've probably sent out some emails and never heard back, but I haven't sent out really too many cold emails lately, I don't think. <laughs> but yeah, that's exactly what I did in Mongolia. And I was like, like, I mean, Mongolia obviously is like a pretty coveted guide gig, you know, and um, I really appreciate that now after being up there, you know, like I want to fish there forever, you know, for the rest of my life. They're really trying to focus on getting the residents into guiding. Oh, yeah, it's a big deal. Like most of our guides, well, half of our guides are Mongolian. But yeah, it can be kind of, you know, say we have four or five guides on hand uh, for any one trip. And yeah, it can be kind of a 60-40, 50-50 type thing. So are you doing something in particular? to get these gigs like are you just sneaking in I don't know no I think it's like I, I don't know man uh I just really want them and I guess it's probably a little bit of a case of like the squeaky wheel gets the grease type thing too like honestly like with Mark Mongolia so Mark you know you podcast and actually on that trip when we met Mark Johnson he's the owner of Mongolia River Outfitters um I wrote him an email like literally like every like three to six months for like three years I think no way <laughs> yeah. okay yeah which was maybe extremely annoying but it got me there you know what I mean um, and obviously I mean you know and I think about it now like his head guide there like if somebody was doing that to me I would like dude, this guy like wants it, you know, and that's like, that's a big thing about guiding. You got to really love it and want it. Um, when I think of world-class guides, I do think of you. I've, I haven't fished <laughs> with you in New Zealand, but I <laughs> yeah. have fished with you in Mongolia. And you just, you, you just, you have like the perfect mix of professionalism, but we can still relate with you and have a good time and laugh. You're yeah. just the perfect mix of fun and business. Thanks. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. And I want to talk to you a little bit about the whole guiding life because I did yeah. write an, art, an article or a series called So You Want to 
to be a fishing guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I thought about a lot of the people I've, I've fished with, yeah. you being one of those people. Yeah. And um, and I wanted to kind of have this discussion in person. Okay. So let's talk about a couple of the things that uh, I discussed and I want in the article, and I want to hear it from the horse's mouth. Sure. Fishing with clients. I wrote that a guide should never fish with their clients. Uh-huh. And most, 90% of the people agree with me, but there are 10% who don't agree with me. Okay, yeah. And I want to hear, in your opinion, what do you think about fishing with clients? It's totally situational, man. Like, I, I had a strict policy for a long time. I was like, you like, never going to do it. No, not in a million years. Won't do it. And then I actually, like... It was a little bit of a different situation, but I'm pretty sure I fished with you after you caught that huge fish in Mongolia. <laughs> You're like, big fish. <laughs> yeah, but obviously different. But yeah, jeez, uh, I don't know. And um, yeah, mo- 90% of the time, I'm just, I'm absolutely not going to do it. And uh, it's probably like 98% of the time, I'm not going to do it. If a client's very insistent that I do it, I, th- I will. But it's not like a situation, um, unless I have a very special, very unique relationship with one of my clients where I'm going to be going like fish to fish with you. You know what I mean? It might be just like in a million years, I'm not going to make this shot. And I've been trying for an hour, Jeff, just like give it a go and let's get on with our day. You know, maybe, maybe do that or fishing a still water or something, you know, if we're going like blind fishing in a still water, I actually think it's a real advantage to have, you know, especially if I only have one, one angler fishing, you know, like, cause you got to kind of figure out what's going on out there. So yeah, if I can have them fishing and I can be fishing myself where, you know, we're doing like different things, you know, maybe I'm fishing a sink line, different flies, whatever. We're, we're just kind of getting to the point, you know, and that, that kind of helps advance that. Do you think it comes down to how many fish there are? Like in New Zealand, you know, you could hike a kilometer and only see that one big brown. Or in Mongolia, it could, you could have three days of no fish. Totally, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, that's a big part of it for sure. Yeah. yeah. So would yeah. you be more... I want, I want my clients to have like every single opportunity that they can possibly have, even if it's like a 90% fail rate. So if there's a fish that they absolutely cannot make, but you can, you know, the cast, will mm-hmm. you do it? Um... If they've tried, and I think they've really given it all, they're all, and if they're, like, extremely insistent, but I'm also, like, I would never ask to do it, and I, yeah, I'd be quite happy to just walk past the fish, too. You know, I, I, I can't, there's not there's not a definitive answer for that. It's a real yes or no. Like, some of my clients down here I've been fishing with for years. Like, I spend more time through the summer months with them than I do with my girlfriend, you know? Yeah. And in that situation, I mean, like, you know, we're like mates, you know? So, it's all good. Like, I actually don't feel that bad about it, you know, which is kind of a cool place to be with guiding too yeah. Um, but yeah mo- mo- most of the time I'm just not gonna, not gonna do it I guess my next question about guiding is do you make as much money as you thought that you would when you looked at the numbers on the books? Oh, uh, probably not initially, no. Yeah, I mean, I'm making more money now than I did when I started guiding, but um, yeah, I, I probably, especially at that point in my life, because I was pretty young and I was, you know, it was like, it seemed like big dollars to me, but it, it's not. <laughs> you don't make any money being a fishing guide. Yeah. What about fishing guide school? Did you ever think about going to guide school? No, no, I didn't, yeah. Did you learn anything from guiding from working at shops? Um, yeah, I learned a, a lot about fishing from working in shops yeah yeah, definitely and that's guiding I guess at the end of the day Um, I don't I I never thought about guide school I have a really close friend of mine Kyle Shea we started working in Alaska West together same year he went on to be their head guide for a while he did a guide school I think he did Sweetwater's guide school Mm -hmm. and like it was a great thing for him man and I think it's probably a good thing for some people how come you don't run a jet boat in New Zealand when you did in Alaska and didn't the first jet engine come from here yeah, totally, man. Like, classic case of Kiwi ingenuity, you know, living down here on, like, a rugged island in the South Pacific. Like, these guys, like, they have fun and, and get things done, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, they invented the jet engine. And, yeah, I, I, it's just not... It's mo- Most of our fisheries are, like, walking weight fisheries. You know, you just... You would ruin the fishery by running a jet boat up the river in short, you know? A lot of... You know, we fish, you know, relatively small water, mostly. It's just not applicable to even float a lot of the rivers, you know? It just doesn't make any sense to do it. But that being said, there are some big rivers we live on one that is totally worth float fishing or you know running a jet boat up and floating back down or just using a jet boat as access and i would love to use a jet boat i just don't have one (laughs) in some situations you know especially this time of year you know we're coming into like it's autumn streamer fishing there's some big rivers man and that's like the thing like i don't want to give away all the secrets but sometimes like the best fishing in the country is right under your nose you know everybody wants to walk 100 miles into the backcountry but could be right there how come when i'm swinging flies i catch more rainbows than brown trout i don't know that's uh that's a good question 
most of your brown trout in tight? Um, a lot of them, yeah, I guess would be. That's that's more or less kind of where I'm first going to kind of go when I'm thinking about them, you know, and I'm on a river. It's, yeah, kind of more more on the edges and stuff. I mean, there, 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 there's definitely plenty of brown trout in swinging water. You know, you're, you're, you'll you're be putting your fly in front of them. I don't know. That's a really funny thing, April. Um, I, yeah, I, I just, I, I can't really weigh in on it too much. I don't know. I'd have to pay closer attention, I guess, now. Uh, I don't do a lot of swing fishing here. You well, know, I don't do a lot of double van fishing. I don't swing down here, uh-huh. but in the North Island I do. And there are okay. there are more rainbows up on Oh, uh, yeah, now. yeah. And that, that could be a lot to do with it as well. Yeah. yeah. Have you done any swinging around here? It's hard because I want to sight fish to everything down here. I know. Yeah, that's that's right. And even when I am down here and I'm on the bigger rivers, or if I go by a big river, I, I would... I end up finding myself sauntering off into the little tributaries and then fishing yeah, in there. Totally. Yeah. Fishing the small stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the coolest thing in the world to see like a, you know, a, whatever, it doesn't even matter the size, but a brown trout and like, you know, a river that's like two meters across. <laughs> it's right there and watching it all unfold. <laughs> yeah. uh, can I keep picking your brain about being a guide? Lay it on me. Okay. So Joe Blow listening to this wants to start. Mm-hmm. And so is his first move just to go ahead and get on the email? <laughs> you might think so. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, I guess know where you are and be like a competent angler of course you know that's like the base <laughs> requirements i think you know what you're getting into you know so i guess maybe read your article i haven't read it myself but there's probably some valuable information in there because it's not like everything like i, I love it you know um, i wouldn't trade it for the world i'm probably not going to be doing it when i'm like 60 you know what i mean well that was the big that was actually how the article started is i wanted to paint a very real picture for people that listen i know that you want to get into it now but you need to think about your future yeah and and that was really what the article started as and then it kind of branched out into a series from there but that was one of my next questions for you is what do you what's your long-term plan um i don't know man to be honest i don't really have a like I, i'm i'm well invested in the fishing industry obviously and i like it here um so i'm gonna stay around <laughs> and yeah I, I don't know exactly where it's gonna take me you know like and that that's the thing and that's the reality of kind of being a guide is like the wheels are always turning you know for me anyway you know i try to kind of think down the line and uh you know what i'll be doing and i don't i don't have that answer right now you know i think a lot of times in this industry maybe maybe i will guide actually i would like to guide and and at least in some capacity for a long time you know but not at the uh at the rate i'm doing it right now you know not like back-to-back seasons you know northern hemisphere southern hemisphere blah oh, um oh yeah okay right you know what i mean that's just it's a lot of days on uh, guiding that's a well, lot of what does your year look like when you break it down what does your year look like so i guide in new zealand from i kind of start in october-ish uh, really fire up in november and that runs through April little drabs in May and then historically I've gone to Mongolia from there and I was my first year in Mongolia I was there for like almost five months and that was like June through October that's our whole season which is yeah which is crazy and I haven't done that since but I was averaging three months there and I'm, I'm even kind of cutting that back down and but that's the thing like so I'm, I'm just like I don't know I mean you, you're probably a pretty good example of this like you've you've just got to get creative and kind of like make it work you got to kind of you know it's a juggling act you know you're kind of it's not you, it, like just guiding or just doing one thing I think in, for the long run it's not going to cut it not for me anyway yeah, um, I think it's a big mistake people make is that they assume that that's what it, what it is I mean the mm-hmm. amount of people who say oh, I, or you know used to say to me I'd, I'd love your job you get to fish for a living and it's totally. like well <laughs> There's a lot more that goes into it than just that. Yeah. And then because you do guide for yourself, you're dealing with the administration. Totally. And the insurance costs. Yeah. And all of the emails. I mean, think about how much communication goes into getting clients booked with their flights, and then they need to get here, and then where am I going to stay? Well, yeah, it's huge. It's so it's much huge, work. man. And like, right in the middle of the season, you know, like, it's the last thing you want to deal with, but that's it. And, like, we were talking about earlier, like, here in New Zealand, it's a little bit different. I think there's probably some parts of the world that it's you can almost get away with it. It's a little bit I don't want to say it's a nine to five because I know it's not but maybe a little bit more like that but like you know we're driving an hour and a half to the river in the morning and you're getting lunch along the way and then you're fishing all day and like we don't do short days on the river because you can't you know like it's hard and you need as much time as possible and people have come from the other side of the world so you want them to like have the best experience possible uh, and then we got to drive back and then it's like clean the truck you know swap out the waders do this do that uh, write some emails and do it all again tomorrow you know is there a time uh, where the rivers are really on like for hatches 
Uh, like a time of year? No, it's a time of day. Um, uh, every every year is uh, every time of year is different for that, I guess. But yeah, like in the summer, you know, like a lot of times in New Zealand, because a lot of what we do is sight fishing. We need the sun, you know. So the fishing can be good first thing in the morning and you know last light too. Really, what we're looking for, especially on our guide days and stuff, is we're we're fishing through the middle of the day. In the summertime, it's a lot of terrestrial fishing, so we're waiting for the day to heat up and the bugs to come out and stuff like that. Like some of the best fishings, you know, from kind of. 11 o'clock noon kind of onwards into the afternoon. When you have to drive an hour and a half or two hours in the morning, it's not ruining your whole day. No, not at all. Sometimes it's like, especially this time of year, I'm like, sweet, uh, you know, because it just takes, the sun's going to be up a little bit higher once we start fishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it doesn't cut into the fishing either, you know, like, uh, I mean, it, I, I guess it does if we were just to start fishing here, but I mean, you're still getting the full day fishing, you know, we're fishing six, eight hours. Yeah. Do you make <laughs> your clients fish 18 foot long waders? If they can handle it, definitely. <laughs> well, it depends on the river too. It's a, you know, it's not, you don't always need an 18 long, 18 foot long leader, but sometimes you do. And if you can't handle it, what's the point, you know? And like, we'll obviously try to work through that with tuition and stuff, but yeah, as long as possible, man, like it's, it's hard to go below 12. <laughs> yeah. Do you get a lot of people who are only comfortable casting a 12? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Comfortable and uh, able, I guess, you know, like, cause it's, it's more than just getting it up there. It's gotta be in the right spot and you gotta be able to get the right drift and a million other things. You right? must have the patience of a saint because you've got to deal with people casting those horrible flies in Mongolia. <laughs> that was horrible. Like really, really awful, especially yeah. on the glass rods. It yeah. took me a long time. Actually, it was a trip. It was Bolivia. I ended up going to Bolivia having to fish a similar setup, the glass rod and the yeah. big flies. Yeah. And only then did I figure out what I was doing wrong. I just had to wait a little bit longer for the big flies to pull behind me. Sure. But they are a bitch to cast. Yeah, they can be. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it takes some getting used to, but if any if you're going to get used to casting them anywhere in the world, it's going to be Mongolia because you have to cast so much for this fish. So you have, <laughs> you have clients there casting those big flies, and then you've got clients here casting 18-foot leaders. Yeah, to, like, wary fish. How do you <laughs> keep your sanity? Uh, it's hard work some days, for sure. There's no way of sugarcoating that, but it is what it is, too. You know what I mean? Like, this is what these fisheries are, and I'm trying my hardest to, to get it done for you, you know, and... Uh, you know, like if someone's having a meltdown, they're having a meltdown, you kind of give them their space and just try to keep spirits up, you know what I mean? And I, I still am relatively hard on myself if, you know, like we miss an opportunity or something or someone blanks for a day because it happens, man. But also, it, I mean, there's not, there's not, I'm, I'm trying my hardest. There's not much more I can do about it. So yeah, that's, I guess that's, you know, you just got to come to terms with it and that's how you keep your sanity, you know? And as long as people are, you know, people are the hardest part about the whole equation, as you know well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and as long as, as they're cool, you know, and then, then it's all good. I admit I've had days when I used to guide where I wanted to just walk into the river and disappear. Yeah. And and I <laughs> totally could walk to the bank and disappear, but you are either stuck in a boat with them yeah. or you're step by step with them on the river. For sure. Do you and ever we, like eat dinner and camp out and then wake up and have breakfast? Yeah. I mean, like, I'm not, not going to tell you names right now, but there's a real famous BC guide. Who, what he would do is he would put one client on one end of the run and another client on the other end of the run. Yeah. And then he would go sleep in between them <laughs> and but they wouldn't know they would each yeah. think that he was with the other client <laughs> right, yeah, and he, I would be like I've got to just go to the bathroom I just need a couple of minutes yeah. and then 10 minutes later I'll come back to clear my, my mind yep. how do you handle it have you ever had a day where you're like I, I truly just can't go on like this um yeah I've had some definitely some pretty hard times out there man where it's just like well yeah, you it's a, like you just go from dream job to like this is the worst fucking job in the world. Excuse my language. I don't know why I'm doing this, and I really want to quit. Like I'm I'm going home. This is my last trip. Like my last season. I'm over it. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I like sometimes you, you do. You walk away. You know, like I gotta I gotta go take a leak or something. Go into the bushes. Like you know, do some breathing exercises. <laughs> kind of know that there's a there's an end in sight, and just try to be rational about it too. Have you ever fired a client? <laughs> no, I haven't. I had a guy walk back to a truck once on a, on a river. And <laughs> you? No, not because of me. No, because of his himself. Like, he was just, uh, he was in fits because he just couldn't get it done. It was like a windy day because it's always windy in New Zealand. Everybody was listening. <laughs> and, you know, he, so he was struggling with the wind, struggling with the leaders, struggling with the fish, struggling with everything, and was just, like, throwing his toys. Like, I mean, this guy, like, literally, like, slapped the water with his rod type stuff you know 
know? And I'm like, and you know, like, honestly, like, I, at that point, like, I'm laughing. I was laughing. Like, I was like, what, what? dude, you're a grown Wouldn't man. Make more angry? Um, no, because he knew, because he was acting like a baby, right? And his wife was there with oh, with him, no. too. But she was wonderful. She was awesome. And, like, the truck wasn't that far away. Like, I wouldn't send my client just off into oblivion by themselves, you know? But, you know, he's like, I want to go back to the truck. And, like, I don't want him to do that. I don't want him, this to be his New Zealand. It's like a day trip, you know? This is his New Zealand fishing experience, you know? I don't want it to be like that. So I could, like, try to talk him out of it. And it's just, like, nah, just over it. I'm going back. Like, All right, man, whatever. I can't, you know, and, like, I was, like, his wife she went, do you want to keep fishing and she's like kind of learning how to fish and like a lot of women just like super attentive and like absorbing everything and we went on fishing by ourselves and like had an awesome afternoon you know oh, <laughs> like no and yeah, he went uh, <laughs> yeah totally yeah and you know like we got back to the truck and like you know that was the best thing he could have done I guess you know and like he knew his temper I suppose but um like he was pretty cool by the time we got back to the truck and like <laughs> she put a couple nice fish on the back. no <laughs> <laughs> did you guys tell him that of course, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and that's like, I mean, that's kind of my policy. Like, again, like, it, you know, the fishing, it is what it is, man. And if you're going to, like, freak out about it, and, like, I'll tell you that on the river, too, if you're having a bit of a moment, like, I'll give you your space because I've, I have, we all have our moments. Like, I get that. But, you know, if you're, you're letting it, like, ruin your day and my day, like, we need to probably talk about it or figure it out. <laughs> so, what would you suggest to somebody when the wind is blowing at you? It's often, like, a really high back cast, low forward cast situation because a lot of times we we have shit in our back cast. You know what I mean? So, you not going to get away with like a, a low angle cast like it, you have to have that high back cast I was saltwater fishing with some friends the other, a couple months back and they are like giving me shit about how high my back cast is <laughs> you know but you're always keeping it above like you know like you see these beautiful pictures of New Zealand river valleys and they're like like wide open spaces and you're like look at this like it's just it's a golf course you know <laughs> but it's not the case when you're there on the water you know like you got grass up to your neck or even if it's only up to your waist like down the high bank like the wind's blowing it's blowing your fly almost guaranteed into that grass yeah. so high back cast low forward cast you know like bring your double haul get used to get, like practice your casting and do you ever fish those real braided rivers the big braided ones some of them yeah yeah how do you Occasionally, know braid to choose because they all look so good do yeah, they all have fish and, and they, yeah no they don't all have fish in them and some of them do and fish move around a lot in those rivers because there's not a lot of stability in them you never know where you're going to find fish like you have ideas but you're always looking for like stable banks you know, and even in some of those braided rivers, there's some stable sections, and you don't honestly realize it until you're right on them. Sometimes, yeah, it's hard to see from afar until you get there. Totally. So, what about the real gravelly stuff? That's you're saying that loose substrate is typically not good holding water. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, fish will hold there sometimes. You know, especially like over on the coast where this fish kind of move around a lot. You know, like again, like you're just like, what is this fish doing here? You know, but it's like he's feeding on terrestrials and stuff, so it doesn't uh-huh. matter really where he is. You know what I mean? Because cicadas are landing in that unstable water as much as they are the stable water. But that being said, like those fish are definitely going to trend towards the more traditional trout water, you know, because they have the cut banks and they have shelter or whatever, you know, somewhere to go. Okay. Back to the guiding. You are not a real self-promoter. Okay. Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so either. You've got a a pretty normal life on social media. You're not Mm. posting 10 pictures a day and trying to drive traffic. Yeah. Um, or fishing with no clothes on. (laughs) Yeah. So how do you handle marketing as a self-employed guide in today's world? Uh, Yeah, I I don't, to be totally honest. Um, I like, yeah, I do like, I keep up a little bit on social media just to like keep up a presence, you know? Um, And I've definitely, you know, picked up the odd client and stuff through that and more so like just built like some kind of cool relationships and made some cool connections and stuff. But I do that and then like I have my website and, you know, being a member of the Guides Association you know they kind of promote us you get some trips and from that not much though to be honest most of it's word of mouth man you know and 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 also fishing around in different destinations guiding in different destinations that's a big thing for me i fish with a lot of people um you know that i fish with you know in alaska or from mongolia here in new zealand or vice versa but yeah yeah most of it's word of mouth what about didimo how do you manage that around here yeah didimo i mean check clean dry you know what i mean can you explain to people what that is because i think a lot of people come here and they actually don't realize it's a problem. Yeah. So, uh, Didymo is this horrible invasive algae and um, it transports itself on anything and everything, you know, i.e. mostly your boots, but fishing gear too, and boats and stuff like that. So, check clean dry. So, you know, just obviously like checking and if there's like a big gob of algae on your boot, take it off. 
Um, and then clean them, you know, and you can do that. It's pretty easy. A lot of places you go uh, in New Zealand shops and stuff, you can get like a Didymo cleaning kit where you kind of fill it um, like a spray bottle, like half detergent and water, and you can spray your boots. That's cleaning them, you know, and obviously like you can scrub them down and mm -hmm. knock off any anything that might be kind of hanging on there and then drying it out, drying it out. I think if you dry it out for like 48 hours or 72 hours, it kills everything. So, yeah, it's always, because yeah. going back to Australia too, we have to have clean boots and then coming here. So yeah. it's constantly, we're constantly in hotels in the shower cleaning <sighs> boots and then we'll yeah. like tie our boots to the back of the truck and drive with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. we can dry that's it That's right. It's a, yeah, and that's a, like I think a thing that a lot of people aren't used to is the biosecurity we have in New Zealand because mm -hmm. we're this like remote island in the middle of the South Pacific. We have to take care of that stuff you know so like when you fly into New Zealand like they're gonna check your gear out and like declare that you have fishing gear with you and let them see it and it's they're not you're not gonna get in trouble you know uh, and it's kind of intimidating because it's a like customs type situation but they'll, they'll clean it for you you know like there's some good Kiwi hospitality <laughs> like they'll take it literally like out the back and clean it and give yeah, it back to you they really do have yeah. to do that for you before it's really nice but really awkward at the same time yeah, yeah. but it does save you a major fine it does yeah and it's something that needs to be taken like pretty you know pretty seriously especially like I mean you know like stuff like I do you know like flying over to Mongolia and stuff like that if you're traveling around the world you don't know I mean that's how Didymo got here in the first place you know it's and in South America too they don't have it in Mongolia do they you know it's actually really funny I think Peter Fong who we're talking about uh, he's the other head guide up there he I think he did some research and I think it's there kind of endemically so it's uh, I, yeah it's it's to, to, to my knowledge is it's a non-issue you know are yeah. you allowed to have felt boots here no. Just fiber or... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah just rubber soles. Um, and, yeah, um, you know, there's still... Uh, you know, I think... Uh, much as it pains me to say, I think a lot of places in New Zealand, especially on the road system, the damage is kind of done, you know? I, th I think so. Um, you know, like, I mean, there's a lot of rivers, and a lot of people go from river to river, and, you Do know... Do they have it on the North Island, though? No, they don't have it on the North Island, and, again, uh, I, I don't know the, the science behind it all, April, but I would be, you know, not to be, like, a pessimist or anything, but I would be surprised if somebody hasn't, like, you know, had it on their boots and walked into a North Island river by now. Um, so maybe there's, you know, something biologically going on there. That being said, too, you know, like, it's not really worth risking, you know, especially, like, you know, like, yeah, that's what I was going to say. We have all these, like, remote corners of the, the island, you know, like, you're going to, to the depths of Fjordland. Actually, if you go in the Fjordland, like, you have to get a clean gear certificate. Like, you have to go to the Department of Conservation, and they're going to watch you clean your stuff, and and then you have to, um, like, oh, take in a cleaning my. kit with you. That <laughs> So you're saying if you go to Fjordland, mm -hmm. you have to, where do you check in? How do you know? Is it a, is it a park? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so many questions at once. Yes. <laughs> it's it, it's a, it park. a park. Yeah, it's a, it's a national park. Fjordland National Park. Okay, there's not like a door that you go knock on. So how yeah. does this work? Okay, so, and even like guiding aside, like if you just want to go fish in there, um, yeah, you have to have a clean gear certificate. So Fjordland National Park is managed by the Department of Conservation, who is our park service, okay? They have visitor centers, like most parts of the world, they have national parks. Um, so you go, go into the visitor center. So you literally do go knock on a door. <laughs> yeah, okay. kind of, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're there. It's an open door, so you just walk in and find somebody. But, uh, yeah, and, and there's a couple other, like, depot stations around, and uh, there's probably information in your regulation booklet when you buy your license. Like, that regulation booklet is so important. I think probably everywhere in the world, but definitely here. Like, keep it with you, you know? It's really easy to throw away and stuff, but there's a lot of valuable information in there, you know, pertaining to etiquette and, and stuff like this, which I guess you could classify under etiquette, but regulations are, um, are there for a reason. Um, yeah, so you go into the Department of Conservation, the Visitor Center, and tell them you're going fishing, where you're going fishing, when you're going in, how long you're going to be there, and show them your license, show them your gear. If it needs to be cleaned, you clean it in front of them. They have a little cleaning station outside. And New Zealand's, like, they're really good about that. Like, even on some of those rivers, you know, um, if there's a popular trail nearby, they'll have cleaning stations. Or if you take a ferry across or whatever, like, they'll make you, like, step in a bucket of solution when you get off, you know, to clean your boots, which is cool. Yeah. yeah. Is there Dynamo there? I don't know. I don't think so. No. Wow. So they've been able yeah. to manage it. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. They've been able to manage it and it's been able to manage it. You know what I mean? It's just like the nature of that kind of place. It's pretty yeah. rugged. Cool. Last question. Is there anything at all that you can think of for advice for young people, not even young people, for the guy who is you, who wants to make this into a career, but really doesn't know how to make it happen? Anything you, that you that you have done that would attribute to your success? Man, go for it. I think, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, do, do, you know, do your due diligence and make sure it's something that you want to do but if you know you want to do it like 
I didn't know. Uh, I don't know that you know my way was necessarily the right way, you know. Um, but yeah, I guess like when I was in that situation, I didn't know what the hell to do. So that's why I just started writing people, man, you know, and, um, you know, like be honest, be, you know, kind of hard work and put yourself out there. That's the biggest thing. You just got to put yourself out there and, uh, and stick to it. You know, like if you get shot down, you know, whatever, try it again. Like three to six months every three year, to six for months three years. every year for years. <laughs> how, does yeah. it, how, do you, how does your relationship, I know it's a personal question, but yeah. how, I mean, I know personally that my relationships couldn't handle it mm. how are your how's your relationship yeah i mean i'm totally blessed uh, uh that hillary's like is um kind of understanding and independent as she is you know um she's been and like supportive obviously she's been nothing but supportive like from the beginning because like it was like she just knew that it was my dream from the beginning you know so uh and she's a reasonable person so she knows she can take that away from you can't do that to someone you love you know what i mean uh so yeah it's hard you know it's it's hard for both of us sometimes you know especially those long runs you know like um being away for three months or four months or something is kind of crazy but i'm you know i'm trying to kind of curb that a little bit right now to kind of bring it back uh and when you're self-employed you can come home at night like when i used to have winter still yeah, <laughs> yeah and you're tired it's not much quality time but i yeah. know winter still had trips i could come home but it's when you're gone for months on end yeah in for example mongolia yeah where it gets hard what about alaska can you bring your partner in yeah, and uh, even in Mongolia, I could bring Hillary there, you know, like the company is like super open to that kind of stuff. And yeah, I think in Alaska, like, you know, she could come work as a camp hand or whatever. And um, yeah, I think those those opportunities are there. But I mean, she's, you know, she's a nurse. She's got her, she's got a job and she's got a life uh, that she likes, you know, she wants to be here. Like she's coming, you know, obviously she's been to Alaska like we talked about, but she's visited me in Mongolia too. And, um, you know, so she's into like travel on the outdoors and that whole side of the world and life but yeah she's got a life to maintain here which i'm like so freaking grateful for it's not even funny like i, I honestly can't uh i don't know if i tell her that enough but i can't explain how nice it is you know and it, it probably kind of contributes to like why i'm able to do it but how nice it is to like come home to like a normal kind of settled life you know like it's so nice like i love being out there on the river and like thinking about nothing but fishing for a long time and like disconnecting from like the internet and just like the busy life as we know it you know that's really special but like it also um at you know three months in you're kind of ready to get back to like your comfortable bed and the people you love and um and that's definitely not not without you know kind of some hardships and stuff but that's what you do for love <laughs> <laughs> so you've heard it from the horse's mouth it's possible it's a lot of work sounds like it's a, bit, a little bit of luck yeah 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 definitely yeah for sure no doubt about not it. a whole lot of planning initially no, I mean, just, like, drive. Like, I had direction. I knew where I wanted to go and where I wanted to be, kind of, you know, mm-hmm. fishing guide. <laughs> be a nice person be so nice that the person. locals don't hate you. <laughs> yeah. And marry or be with the person <laughs> in the country you want to work in. That's right. <laughs> um, thank yeah. you very much for taking the time to sit down with me so late. Yeah, no, it's okay. I know we're both exhausted. Yeah. Is there anything that I've missed that you would like to add? I don't think so, man. We talked about a lot. On that note, I'm going to wrap this up and let you get to bed. Cool. Thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening.